0: Welcome back to the Rosemary McGee Creativity Conversation podcast. My name is Maggie Becker. These podcasts are pulled from live recordings of Rosemary McGee Creativity Conversations, where renowned thinkers and creators come into conversation about their craft on Emory's campus. Today, I am joined by
1: student and 2019-2020 Stipe scholar Maria McNeese. Hi, my name is Maria McNeese. I am a senior in Emory College, and I major in dance and movement studies. So I'm the dance fellow in the Stipe Society, so I'm the person that represents dance on campus. Today,
0: we are talking about Sarah Julie's Creativity Conversation. Why did you pick that one?
1: So I actually saw Sarah Julie when she came to Emory last spring, I think it was. She performed a piece that she created called Tense Vagina, which had been touring around like 10 cities in the United States at the time. So I was able to see her performance of that. I think it's pretty rare that we get to see such an interdisciplinary performance at Emory. I feel like usually when they bring in artists for these kind of commissioned projects, it's usually really strictly within one sort of form. It was just really cool to see an artist that was creating that kind of work and was getting such such positive feedback from the university and we were able to support her in that way and she also just seemed pretty cool like so i was just interested to hear more about where her artistic philosophy came from and how it developed and who she was as an artist and what kind of work she was making yeah i jumped on that conversation like as soon as i saw it
0: <laughs> what did she talk about in the conversation
1: surprisingly she talked a lot about how her role as like an arts administrator really impacted the way that she lived her artistic life she talked a lot about how she was in new york doing this whole starving artists thing and then kind of fumbled her way into like the development side of artistic nonprofits, and how that really helped her kind of create a solid foundation for her as a business person as and also as an artist like she mentioned that she went to the fringe festival in ireland and she made a lot of really bad financial choices that left her in a lot debt and she is really passionate about protecting other artists and giving them the business skills to protect themselves and market themselves accordingly. She also talked a lot about like frankly like the criticism that she's received as being like not a real quote-unquote dance artist because people see her work and they're like oh you talk to the audience and you laugh and so that's not dance which is like something that I can at least relate to right now just because I'm creating a work that's based on a play. I got a lot I have had a lot of conversation with people that were like well is it theater or is it dance like how much can you incorporate theatrics? into a dance performance and still maintain the artistic integrity of a dance form and something that I think was really inspiring was that she was like it's dance because I say it's dance and like it's the role of the artist to define what what form it is. Tell me about the project that you are working on right now. So I'm working on um, my senior honors thesis in the dance and movement studies department. There are a couple of different tracks that the dance department offers for students who want to complete that project and I'm going on the choreography track so that's just creating a full length work based on pretty much whatever you want as long as it's approved by the department so I'm doing a work that's inspired by the play Waiting for Godot which kind of birthed a new form of theater called Theater of the Absurd so I'm taking like kind of the historical underpinnings of the writing of the work which was created really kind of in post-World War II Europe also looking at the plot and kind of this existentialist theme that keeps coming up in a lot of Beckett's work and then just making that into a dance piece
0: you're looking more to rediscover the themes than to like retell the story, or you are converting well, a the bit story into.
1: Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. It's like kind of impossible to say I'm creating a dance work that somehow encapsulates basically what the play is talking about, which is does life have any meaning? That's outside of the scope of a undergraduate senior honors thesis. But Beckett provides a lot of really concrete, very rich visuals in the play, like the eating of a turnip or taking off shoes. And that's, that's really rich to create choreography based off of. So to some extent, it's just going to be a blending of the two. It's like, how can we maintain, again, the integrity of the play, which is kind of this existentialist plot while still making it not so abstract that an audience can't understand.
0: So how did you fall into this interest in this play? Because one has to think as a senior who's about to graduate and kind of go mm-hmm. out into the world and try and figure out what your like life path is. It's very interesting to pick a play that's kind of like, is there a God? Do we have any direction?
1: I read the play for the first time when I was in high school, which is, I think, when a lot of people read this play. It's pretty, like, standard theater class or, like, English literature class material. But then it kind of got brushed, like, to the side and never really looked at it again. But it always kind of, like, struck a chord in me. Like, it resonated me in the sense of, like, not necessarily, like, does life have any meaning, but it really kind of stirred up a lot of questions about the role of action and inaction in our day-to-day lives. And I'm a business major, so we kind of have this mentality of, like, every day, has to be taken advantage of and your life is so short and like I I get I hear all those messages especially in my academic environment with my other major I don't know I kept kind of returning to the play when I was thinking about what kind of project I really wanted to create and I kept coming back to this because it has a lot of relevance to my life now in the same way that it kind of struck a chord with me when I was 16. I also wanted to create a thesis that I felt my dancers could, like, relate to and, like, we could have some rich discussions about. I didn't want to necessarily do something that it was really just my research and then my dancers were coming in and learning the choreography and then leaving. I really wanted it to be, like, a topic that everybody could sit down around a table and, like, discuss. And I think does life have any meaning and, like, what is the purpose of our day-to-day lives, like, is something that anybody from any background can come and talk about. So, What are um, some
0: of the answers that you found to those questions?
1: Oh, that, that's a great question. I don't think that I am interested in the answers to that because then I think as soon as we start getting into the answers about that, the relatability dies. The purpose of the play and also the purpose of the thesis is just to pose the question and to make the question available to people to think about on their own.
0: Thank you for sharing your time and craft with us. Please enjoy this Rosemary McGee Creativity Conversation with Sarah Julie. Some of this audio has been cut down from the original video, which you can find on the Emory University playlist under Rosemary McGee Creativity Conversation series.
2: It's great having you all here. Uh, My name is Brent Glenn. I'm the Artistic Director of Theater Emory. Thank you for coming to today's creativity conversation. You'll be very happy to know that uh, I will be talking very little doing this, and I am just setting us off, hopefully on the right foot. I'd like to introduce you to Sarah Julie, who's our guest of honor, a performing artist and entrepreneurial spirit, and also uh, today moderating will be Greg Cattelier, whom you may know. But we're just going to jump in right now, and I'm going to start this off, I was hoping that Sarah would begin by just telling us a little bit about her professional life and entire history <laughs>
3: <laughs> how much time do we have okay thanks for having me i have been a, well i call myself primarily a dancer i've been a dancer since i was three i went to uh, skidmore college in saratoga springs and was a double major in dance and anthropology and then promptly moved to new york city to pursue a career in dance and about five seconds into being in new york city to pursue a career in dance I realized I needed a day job to be able to afford rent so I had the thought process that was if I'm going to be a sort of you know typical struggling artist and not have a lot of money and want to pursue dancing that I could get a job in arts administration with the thinking that would at the very least I would be making contacts and meeting people in the field that I was passionate about which is the arts and then dance in particular so I had several uh, kind of the jobs you have in your early early 20s, like bartender and waitress and caterer and desk clerk, and I did a lot of that when I got out of college. It was called the golden age of temping, pre-9-11, which doesn't really exist anymore. But anyway, I got my first kind of real job, jobby job, at um, Dixon Place, which is a laboratory for contemporary art in uh, New York City, and I was their office manager, and what a brilliant first job that ended up being because I met literally thousands of artists that came to the door and it was my job to serve them and help them and help produce their shows. I mostly did contracts and paperwork as the office manager but it was really wonderful foray into the world of the performing arts in New York City because I got to meet so many people who ended up becoming part of my peer uh, network and community who are still I'm um, still friends with today. After that, moved to American Dance Festival where I um, actually met Greg but I was their um, development associate, so I got into this idea of when you get into arts and administration, you have to. There's several tracks that you have to pick, which you may or may not know from the start. The big ones are development and marketing. Uh, And I chose development, again, with the idea of thinking if I learned fundraising for the arts, that perhaps I could fundraise for myself, which has turned out to be true and quite useful. So I got a fundraising job for American Dance Festival, and then also um, after that worked at Dance Theatre Workshop, which is now called New York Live Arts in Chelsea, Manhattan, run by Bill T. Jones. It's a real amazing contemporary lab for performance. I was there before it became New York Live Arts, when it was Dance Theatre Workshop, which was a real venerable institution uh, supporting contemporary dancers and then the concurrently this whole time that I've been working in arts administration I had been and have been developing my solo voice and my solo practice. I have often wondered coming out of college did I become a solo artist because I couldn't afford to pay anyone else or did I become a solo artist because I had a voice that was really clear for me and I didn't want to share that with anyone else. thought long and hard and I I think it was a minor combination between the two. I happened to have this amazing thing happened to me year of college that not not happen, doesn't happen to a lot of people, but for me I took a workshop with a choreographer named Deborah Hay, who's now in her 80s, and a, just a seminal, uh, amazing choreographer from the Judson era in the 60s in New York City, and somebody who's brilliant. And uh, second semester, senior year, I had a um, workshop, a two-week intensive workshop with her as a visiting choreographer, And it was incredibly intensive. I don't remember anything else but being in a dark studio with her for two weeks with candles illegally in a theater. (laughs) In that period of time, through her counsel and teaching and her practice, which is incredibly meditative, I found my voice, it was a real aha moment that I think doesn't, happened to a lot of artists, but I feel really blessed that at such an early stage in my life through this workshop, it unlocked something where I found a voice that I have, that I have been developing and crafting since, which has now been just shy of 20 years, which is the fusion of movement and text and song and sound and humor and a lot of engaging with the audience. I tend to do no fourth wall in any of my work. Anyway, so just back to the bio, which is I've been developing and crafting that voice concurrently with my day jobs. And what's nice about being in your 20s is you have a lot of energy and time. I didn't have a partner or children, of which I have both now, so that's great for your 20s. So I did things like rehearsed in the morning and in the evenings prior to my 9 to 5, and or the theater is largely 10 to 6 for me. After Dance Theater Workshop, I left because I got pregnant with my first child and started my own fundraising consulting practice, which I've now had for 10 years. It's a consultancy that works with independent artists and small to mid-sized nonprofits, helping artists and nonprofits build fundraising strategies. So I work with boards. I train boards of directors on how to ask people for money. I help build fundraising strategies for um, nonprofit organizations. I teach a lot. I teach an arts administration course up at Bates College. It's called the Business of the Arts. So I'm teaching about the back end of being an artist. You may or may not know it was incredibly important to know how to market and sell and produce and do all the other things in addition to making the work itself, which is minorly impossible and I'm (laughs) happy to talk about because I live in that world every day. Then 15 years ago, I left New York City and moved to Portland, Maine, where I now live uh, with my husband and two beautiful children. And I'm working hard in Maine, building the contemporary dance scene there, creating opportunities for local dance artists as well as pursuing my solo career, and my touring work, and have my fundraising consultancy, which helps pay the bills. And I'm working on a new dance. I've been um, touring this piece for three years now, and this actually marks the end of a three-year tour of Tense Vagina, uh, which I'm incredibly proud of, and tired and proud. (laughs) I've been talking about my vagina for a solid three years now. And um, I've started to make a new piece. I've noticed a kind of mentally in about marriage and the challenges of marriage. And that is called Burnt Out Life. (laughs) Which perhaps one day I'll return with Burnt Out Life.
4: So Sarah, I remember the first time I I met you, well, I suppose (laughs) I met you before I met you, but, and I thought I knew you as as an arts admin person and then a common mutual friend said, oh, you have to see her show. It's really interesting, and and I'm probably getting this wrong, so I want you to tell me all about it, is that it's a show in which you give away your entire life savings and then you get it back by the end of the show. Is that right?
3: So... Yes, ish. Well, I think it's important to note that from 2000 to 2007, so there were seven years when I graduated in 2000, uh, there were seven years in New York City that I just call, you know, pounding the pavement, where it's like, put my head down, make work, no one's noticing, no one's paying attention, but I'm, you know, 22 to 28 or whatever that math is, you know, math, and was doing a lot of mixed bills, which I think is uh, really important. I don't know if that's something if you're interested in pursuing professionally as an artist, or just that idea when you first leave school, just like making, a ton of work, making, I don't know, just just producing, you know, just coming up with ideas, the ideas were flowing, making stuff, trying things out, failing, and trying to put it in front of audiences, a lot of mixed bills, so doing a lot of like 15-minute bits on shared shows, which I think is a real gift to developing work. Seven years in, a producer in New York City who was running a venue called Performance Space 122, which is very famous in New York as a laboratory. Well, it's also famous internationally. It's now called uh, Performance Space New York. Uh, He commissioned me, so I got my first, at 27, I got my first commission where he said he came to one of those mixed bills and said, look, you have a really interesting point of view, a really interesting voice. And I'd like to commission you to create your own evening length. So this was my first money conversation, which was what was called. My first evening length work. And the background that is under, important to understand when you see this piece or any of my work is that my work and my personal life are the same thing. So I bring my personal life to the stage and use my issues, things that are plaguing me, as a way to help me heal. Obviously. The idea of art as a healing concept is nothing new and then i've also learned through the act of performing which i've i've just been a a natural performer since i was a little girl it helps me connect with audiences so the experience of performing is very cathartic for me and the reason why i get up every day and also really nice i think uh, for audiences because there's a real exchange anyway so the money conversation the personal issue that was plaguing me was money which I had just gotten more serious with my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband. And we started doing that thing when you start talking about combining finances, which is a thing (laughs) Um, that is awkward. A shit, where you get together and you think, well, how are we going to work this out? Like, is it going to, are you going to have a bank account? Are you going to have, and then we have joint checking and how, who pulls from there, who gets groceries? And every time we talked about it, I started to sweat and get a hot flash, which was fascinating because I was 26 getting hot flashes. And I thought, oh God, I just, ick, it just made me so uncomfortable. And I realized, God, money is so nuts. And that usually is a trigger point when I get a hot flash, Uh, just feeling so like everything's up here. That is uh, my trigger that I need to make a dance about it. So um, I ventured out to this idea of, well, what if I cashed out my entire savings account and brought it to the performance space? And at the time, at 27, I had $5,000 in my savings account, which I think is wonderful. (laughs) That was from my day job in arts administration and not having a partner and not having children. So I was able to save that. That was my life savings. That was all I had. And my parents are teachers, and, you know, we always had enough, but there's no excess. So I knew I was really on my own, and they had made that clear, which is fine. I was a grown-up, you know, at 27. It's a 27-year-old grown-up. Anyway, so I thought, what if I bring my entire life savings to the performance space? It sounds a little crazy now, but then it was good. And I give away my entire life savings to the audience. And they have the choice to either keep it, you can totally keep it, or you can give it back, totally up to the, just relinquish control over my savings. Could that help me reassess my relationship to cash? Could that help me kind of release myself of the burden. And I thought, well, what if I really tested it and I lost it and everybody left it and I was gone? I lost my entire life savings. I thought, you know what? I'll, I can rebuild. Like I have my health, I have my day job, so I would be able to make enough money to figure out rent. I, I just like I just wanted to test the model of what happens if everyone took it. And in doing so, so I, I made this piece. It's an hour long, and it uses uh, these methods that I now call my signature methods, which are the fusion of movement and text and sound and song and humor, and audience interaction. And it's this hour piece, and I creatively give away my entire life savings in denominations of 20s, 50s, and 100s. And then I leave. I bow, and I leave. And $5,000 has been distributed randomly throughout the audience. And there's a deposit box by the door. So you can, when you leave, you could give it, or you could just pocket it. The result was fascinating, which was what what I learned, I learned a really great lesson, which is big risk equals big reward. So I had a lot of people tell me that I was stupid and that was ridiculous. And why would I risk $5,000? And the result was I uh, got an agent who loved the show and picked it up and said, let's tour this thing around the world. And I toured it around the world for five years. Uh, Not the same $5,000. I lost a ton of money, thousands actually. And I also made thousands of dollars performing this show around the world. I also got on um, television. Fox 5 News did a very funny uh, interview about it. I was on NPR multiple times, I was in the New York Times, I was in the New York Post, I was in Time Out New York, Time Out London, I toured to Australia, New Zealand, Holland, London, and every part of that five years of amazingness far exceeded the value of just a small $5,000. And what an amazing lesson for me to learn. And the other thing that I learned was that the minute I decided to use $5,000 as a prop piece, it lost its value as actually $5,000 because suddenly it became a prop piece that allowed me to tour the world. And if I ever did want it as money in the bank, the piece died and ended. So I performed it until I needed to buy a house. (laughs) Uh, And uh, now the piece is dead, because now, uh, as a 40-year-old woman, I think, what? I'm not doing first, taking that out. But um, what a gift. And it also put me on the map as an artist, so I uh, built a reputation, and I built uh, relationships with presenters around the world, who have also invited me back to perform It was an incredible, a first, just real blessing. It's my first time being commissioned. That was really wonderful.
4: I've seen you have this conversation before, where people ask you essentially why you think you're a dancer. Yeah. Just for them, let's have that conversation. So, why do you think you're a dancer? What makes you think (laughs) think that what you do is dance?
3: Oh, because of the theatrical. Because it looks like theater.
4: Yeah. Okay. So. You it's pro- funny. It's funny and you talk, so it cannot be dance. Right, right. right okay. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. So, yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> you probably
3: don't know my work, but as I mentioned, I've been a dancer since I was 3, and the way it manifests if you see the show is a fusion of movement, text, sound, and humor and audience participation, but it looks like a play with some movement. I don't know, sometimes they call it dance theater. But anyway, the point is is that I get a lot as I tour and try to book it with presenters, I can get a lot of pushback from dance presenters telling me, well, we loved it, we thought it was great, but that's not dance, so we can't present it. Which I get very angry about, because one is, I think, as an artist, you get to self-define your own craft. You can have an opinion of what you're seeing, and that's perfectly fine and acceptable, but I can tell you what it is. I know what it is. I've never had any theater training whatsoever. I've only been, um, I've taken dance class uh, in as many forms as you could possibly imagine as anyone who has trained in dance their whole life. Since I was three, I've trained at American Dance Festival for nine summers. My viewpoint, my entry point in, is choreographic. I'm looking at space, I'm looking at time, I'm looking at levels, I'm looking at all the things that a choreographer looks at, and you know, when you uh, watch it, it's highly choreographed. So that's usually my response, is I am a dancer, I've been a bit of dancer, that's my entry point in. You can see it as what you can see it, Uh, and you may not book it uh, in your dance festival. Fuck you, but... uh, (laughs) Just kidding. Um, but, uh, (laughs) But it's a dance to me.
4: Earlier today, I was thinking about your, uh, your, your day gig and how long you've been doing that. You're a very successful artist, but has there ever been a time where you thought, man, I just got to screw these other people and their art. I don't care about them anymore. I just want to do my thing, and th- this other thing has to go by the wayside, or, or is there just a balance? Does it come up and down where you're working with, for other people more sometimes and more for yourself or yeah. by the day and hours, you know?
3: I mean, I work on both other people's art and my own art every day. And I've been in my whole life or my professional life, it's been what's funny is it's been sixty forty. so usually sixty percent working for other people and forty percent working on my craft. Once I uh, premiered Tense Vagina and I got a very prestigious grant that I'm here as part of, which is from New England Foundation for the Arts has a grant called NDP National Dance Project Touring Grant, which allowed me to tour to ten cities, that was like a whoop, a shift, which I I really welcomed, which I would say now in the last two years of my to shy of 20 years, that it's been 60 40, 60% working on my own work and 40% working on others. I would love, I aspire to get to a place where I really could just be a full-time artist and I'm also for those who have that same aspiration I'm fully aware of the reality which is you know even when I get a solid gig it's still not enough money to sustain my lifestyle and having two children and gosh those people are expensive they're cute (laughs) but um, you know they want dance class and karate and you know climbing gear and you have to feed them and it's just like endless and uh, clothes and things like heat so I um, my consulting Practice is consistent it's constant it's cash and that's mm-hmm. gonna be I know uh, always too hard to uh, pass up but I do actually enjoy being a consultant but I need the stability of the administrative work to support my artistry because even when I you know even if I have a good solid schedule of gigs I'm still not getting money you know every week from being an artist yeah
4: I want to ask about the consulting job and then I want to talk about the French festival like let's say I'm I'm someone and I want to be consulted yes. I come to Sarah Julie what happens?
3: Well it depends on what you need. Uh-huh.
4: I just I like making things but I don't really know anything besides that.
3: Okay, so I work with artists from soup to nuts, you know, on building strategies, on building plans. So artists have lots and lots of ideas, but there's not a lot of education about the practical application of those ideas. Even from an academic institution, Skidmore, using my own school as an example, I learned uh, dance history, and, you know, I took indie Baratya Nacho. I mean, so many things that really enriched my own vocabulary and understanding of dance. But when I got to New York City, it was like, huh? Uh, What do I, how do I do anything? So I, depending on... I ask what your goals are, what are your aspirations, what do you want? And then we come up with plans to kind of, you know, back into it. So I personally specialize in the fundraising end. So I can do overall marketing, but that's not my specialties. I have several people who work for me as grant writers. So I advise people on writing grants. I teach grant writing classes. And I also advise on individual giving. So coming up with plans of how you ask people, individuals for money. So generally people come to me with a, I have a project, I have a performance, I have a show that I'm producing or you want to get together. I help them create a budget and a plan of how to raise the money for the project and then how to, you know, pay it out over time. And the last thing you want to do, which actually my husband did is, you know, in those first couple years out of college is to have these lofty ideas to put on shows and get into major credit card debt to afford those shows because that affects your credit score and that really can stay with you your whole life. And if you want to do things like buy homes and cars, you know, you need your credit score to be in good shape. So I, I teach a lot about financial responsibility and for younger Artists, I do a lot of more like teaching classes and workshops, and then you know more for mid-career and established that can get a little more Mm detailed. Did that answer? Mm I
4: think so. Yeah,
3: it's a business. Being an artist is a business. I do a lot of talking about how to talk about your own work with confidence, how to finding your voice. I think a lot of artists make work and then think, well, why? Who's gonna? how to, who's going to hire me, or no one's going to, I don't know, or there's a lot of self-deprecation that we just sort of, I don't know if we're taught, or just kind of comes into a little, you know, a lot of insecurity about what it means to be an artist. So sometimes I feel like I'm a therapist, as I do a lot of <laughs> building confidence and talking about the value of your work. I really believe that I have something to say, and it's worth you spending the ticket, the cost of the ticket, to come listen to what I have to say, and then I will both entertain you and make you think. And it's taken me a long time to have that that confidence to be able to articulate and say like I have something to teach you and each artist needs to find that voice for themselves and that can take a lifetime to really what is my own value and what is my added value what is my contribution because if we were to remove the arts from this planet there would be no color, there would be no shape there would be no texture, there would be no sound there would be no music, it would not be a world that any of us would want to live in so we need to really understand our value in whatever practice, artistic practice we do and not only do we need to advocate for ourselves, but we need to shout it from the rooftops and demand its attention.
4: Before I get to the French, can you talk a little bit about humor? And I imagine that like a lot of folks, like you, it's just the world you live in, yeah. right, is like this is humor. It's the swimming pool that you're in. Oftentimes I feel like in the world of art and especially in the kind of dance art that you and I grew up in. Humor is, it's not taken seriously.
3: Yeah, yeah, (laughs)
4: Um, and so. um, How
3: ironic. Yeah, Yeah.
4: (laughs) I mean, I'm just curious how you feel about that, and if you feel like sometimes you have to school people or even defend.
3: I just, I want to perform. It's just, I'm where, it's where I'm most myself. And I've been starting to bill myself as a dance comic, which is sort of weird and fascinating <laughs> and interesting, which a, a press person in um, North Carolina after performing at an American dance festival called me a dance comic. And I thought, okay, good, I'm keeping it. But I didn't set out to be funny. I just set out to perform and I didn't really make funny dances in college, but I made this piece right out of college called Five of My 40 Million Parts. And that was about how yeah. humans we're all made up of so many different parts, like our angry part and our compassionate part and our empath part. And so I explored just five. We have 40 million. Anyway, and I performed it, and I remember the first time before, and people were just laughing, and I thought, oh fuck, are they just laughing at me? I was confused. And I performed it several times, more times, and they laughed. And afterwards, people were like, God, you're so funny. I realized that I think because I'm going so personal, that there's two things happening, or there's a couple things happening, but one is when you're like this, I'm going to talk about my vagina for an hour, and that's weird. That manifests in an awkward laugh. Like, I find a lot of people laugh to diffuse the tension of like, this feels a little awkward. So laughter is a response of that, and I'm really interested in that tension. Like, am I Am I making you uncomfortable? Can we play in that? And can you access something inside? So I love that if you can get through the laughter, there's something underneath there that's like, oh, maybe... My vagina's bothering me too <laughs> mm-hmm. or maybe I should think about that other vagina in my life so that's one thing and then um, and then the other thing I've learned is I am have a little uh, comedic timing which I think is something you either have or you don't I think it's hard mm-hmm. to teach but I learned that I have a gift of, of comedic timing so people started to respond in that way and then I started to craft it as such mm-hmm. and now it's funny because it's a bit of a trap because now I've come to expect it and now I get annoyed when they don't laugh mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which you don't want to be in that place. It's a tricky place, but um, I'm there. (laughs) My next goal for myself is to do some stand-up in some clubs, which is funny because I'm quite nervous about doing it, Mm -hmm. but I would like to see if I could kind of break into the stand-up world a little bit and be a stand-up comedian who moves rather than a dancer who's funny, and just see if I can perform more that way.
4: Now, you went to the Fringe Festival, and you performed this thing for 20, how many days straight? 22 22 days straight. First of all, can you just explain what the Fringe Festival is and then what that experience was like?
3: The Edinburgh Fringe Festival, for those of you who may not know, is in Edinburgh, Scotland, and it is the largest arts festival in the world. Every year the festival takes over Edinburgh, and there are over 3,000 shows every day in Edinburgh in every art form you could possibly imagine, from puppetry to circus to uh, music bands to theater to dance to everything in between. I was invited by someone who came and saw my show in New York City and said they thought it would be a good fit. Um, I was given a space, which was a real shithole, but there's, you know, 3,000 spaces. So most of them are, it was like actually like a dungeon. Anyway, but um, (laughs) it had 60 seats in it, and that was my home for a month. It was one of the most challenging things I've ever done, day in, day out, trying to, like, breathe new life into this piece. I had um, many mantras of, today, I'm going to perform it, trying to find something new, was a mantra that often, like, let me find something new. I uh, performed for lots of sold houses, and then I performed a few. My lowest one was three people, which was an amazing experience because of... Of the three pe- people, one was my agent, one was an audience member, and one was a press reviewer. And they sat right here in these first three seats mm. in a small theater, <laughs> and the press person actually was sitting there taking notes to like wow. write a review. I was like, this is ridiculous. And I, there's no fourth wall on the show, so I talk to the people, and the people talk to me, and we talk. And, and that was really hard, because she was judging me, and I'm watching her judge me, but this piece, like, all my works really live and die by the audience, because I, I just have to work with the energy of the audience. So there was no energy of the audience anyway and it was really flat and oh, it was just so hard. But I am not rushing back there anytime soon. <laughs> um, I also, I give a lot of talks and advice on how to go to Edinburgh Fringe now because I lost approximately $20,000 being wow. there. I'm still financially climbing out of that experience mm. and I feel as though I was a little taken advantage of as an artist. So I try to educate a lot of artists as to what that is. Like, you know, a fancy producer was like, hey, and it, it was like it cost about 30,000 and I just didn't really know that up front anyway that's a lot of information but a really important learning experience for me and a big financial cash outlay that was um challenging
4: so I knew that about other French festivals that actually the, the that you have to kind of pay for the space yeah and then hopefully you make the money back right. It was that way at the original one as well yeah and when you're dealing with how many other venues? 3,000 venues? Yeah. Like,
3: well, what I learned is you have to be really famous.
4: Yeah, sure. You
3: have to be really famous to make money there. And I didn't need to make money there, but I really couldn't afford to lose $20,000. Yeah. So that would have been helpful. So I try to just teach other artists who are thinking about going just what it is. Like, I'm not saying don't go. Just I needed a little more information that mm-hmm. wasn't that either I didn't seek out or wasn't given to me or a combination of both. Questions? curious mm-hmm. as to uh, at what point in your process does text and song start to come in? Song, com- song comes later, but text is from the beginning. So okay. I've gotten to a place in my dancing where I'm physically incapable of moving without speaking at the same time.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And to me they're the same unit. They're not divorced for me, they're the same. If this goes a whoop, you know, like it just something has to come out. Anyway, so that's right from the beginning. And I do an exercise that I use myself, which is I do a lot of journaling and writing. So I do a lot of personal writing and I use, and I, um, that helps me generate a lot of text. I have a lot of training in improvisation. There's a lot of improvisation in the piece. So the, the fusion of improvisation and the, um, this writing that I've done in advance come together uh, oftentimes with sounds right from the beginning. And then songs, I usually intersect later
4: when you're working with your own artistry, how do you know when it's time to transition? Like, how did you know it was time to be done with tense vagina, and how do you, how will you know when it's time to start with what out
3: white? Yeah, I work with a lot of people, so I'm a solo artist, and I think I'm very like me, 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 and it takes, gosh, so many people. Uh, that help me. I pay all of them, and that's part of why it's important to know how to be an administrator and why I have a day job, and the combination of both fundraising and my day job help me make enough money to hire people. But I have a dramaturg. Uh, she critiques and edits, and it's like, you've got something, or like, ooh, keep going. Um, and um, <laughs> I, have, um, I work very closely with my technical director and lighting designer. I have a costume designer. I have a set designer. I have someone I work with on illustrations. We come up with imagery around the piece. I have presenters and I have peers. And I do a tremendous amount of workshopping. So premiering Burnt Out Wife in October of 2019. And leading up to that, I have at least six workshop showings. And some of them I've built in uh, feedback sessions afterwards. I also, I live close to Bates College. Using university environments to workshop and develop my work has been huge for me. So I'm very close with the students at Bates College and they know me and it's been in such a symbiotic relationship because they see this professional artist like really working out things. And then I really value their feedback since they're also studying the craft. So in February, I'll be at Bates for a week teaching and I have a showing, sit down after with them for at least an hour and kind of go through and nitpick and get feedback. So and the answer is like workshopping. I do a lot of workshopping. And then when I get to the premiere, what's always so funny, you know, I've done not a ton of, you know, we're not like a big show and a big premiere of my own work, but it's not ready, it's not ready, and it's not done, but, you know, the date arrived, and you perform it, and you hope you've put enough in that it's solid, but I have, since premiering this show three years ago, made a tremendous amount of changes, and there's even, right now I'm dealing with a sinus infection, and there's a couple things I already know I'm going to shift for tonight. I just have to find something new because my voice is a little off, so I'm still constantly working on it, so it's never really done, which I like.
2: Could you talk a little bit more? You mentioned something very interesting to me. uh, You have a dramaturg. Yeah. Who is somebody, I mean, how does a relationship develop like that where you feel comfortable exploring and also accepting the critique of a person? I mean, that's, that's something that I think everybody could use, but it's really difficult to find.
3: Yeah, well this, I've worked with I worked with a dramaturg I made this duet with this woman Claire Porter. Yeah. She's an amazing performance artist. I think she's a genius. And she and I made a duet together that we have um, we premiered at American Dance Festival and we had a, um, a dramaturg come in at the end because we had made this piece and saw it had a bunch of holes that we didn't know how to fix. And she came in at the end and I was like, well, you might want to do this, you might do this. And I found, oh my god, it was so defensive that I just didn't like what she had to say because I found myself just defending all the choices we had made, even though I knew it wasn't working. Anyway, so I learned through that process that for this process, this is my first time working with a dramaturg from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And what I'm really learning that I appreciate is as I'm making it, nothing's precious yet because I haven't made it. So I'm showing, we're going, right now we're working on structure and arc. We're working on narrative. And she's right now a wonderful bouncer of ideas, since I'm used to doing a lot of that creative process by myself, that I'm just feel so blessed to be at the beginning going, well, what do you think of this? Or would this make sense? Or what if we went in this direction? And I'm finding what a really good dramaturg does, which this is really hard, and I could never be a dramaturg, is they don't, they support you, but don't push you to go in a specific direction. So they're really there to support your ideas. Without I'm so bossy, like when I see student works, I'm like, just don't do that, do this, <laughs> you know. And that's not really that's not really teaching. That you know, that's just like directing in a way that's a bit abrasive. So she's very good about just being very soft with me and being like, well, how do you consider? It? So I don't know how to be a dramaturg, but right. I, I found somebody who's very conscious of me being in control while her being this amazing bouncer off of ideas.
2: Well, thank you so much for talking Thanks to
3: us Thanks for today. having me.
0: Yay. Thank you for listening to this Rosemary McGee Creativity Conversation. This podcast was brought to you by Emory University and Arts at Emory. It was produced by Emma Yarbrough and me, Maggie Becker. Be sure to check out our other podcast episodes and follow us on Facebook at Arts at Emory and Instagram at Emory Arts.